as a musician, one thing I've always practiced to is a click track and to keep everyone on, <laughs> they make fun of me, DJ's gonna laugh at this, is, okay, vocalists, let's work on this. Uh -huh. Ready? One, two, one, two, three, and. And that would just keep everyone on. We were scared of the sticks. Everybody, you're listening to God Spice with Greg and Kathy. All right. All right. So we played a game last time, Greg. <sighs> you're always playing games with me. I mean, Aren't a little bit. Playing games. It's a little bit fun. It's not really not when you're on the uh, receiving end. Well, let me remind folks who mm -hmm. tuned in with us last time. We played a game called We're Not Really Strangers. We're Not Really Strangers. And Greg and I learned something about but each other. But you might be a stranger. I mean... Stranger Danger. I like that show, Stranger Things. You which do. You oh, played, we yes, talked about that, yes. Which you went into nauseam about why you don't. Yes. Um, but we I did. But the, but the final card was mm -hmm. us to write a note to each other. Oh, Yes, because we people had to don't write, write anything anymore to true. one another, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a cute thing in this game to write a note to the other person, mm -hmm. and we are going okay. to read the note from each we other. Are. That might be embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and we may have to edit this part out. We don't know, but oh. you know, or leave it all in. Let's see. <laughs> Where's your note? Who's going to read first? So we're going to rock paper scissors. Or I what? hand wrote my note to you. Oh, I'm supposed to read it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought we were supposed to read it to each other. And then this is the one you want for me? Yes, it is. Okay. So who goes first? I don't know. Are we doing what do we do? Like rock, paper, scissors? Why don't why don't you go first? No, ladies first. Oh, geez. Yes. Okay. What wait, this is like an essay. It's not an essay. You didn't handwrite it. It's supposed well, to be handwritten. Because then right? there wasn't time to handwrite it and it wouldn't fit on this little piece of oh, paper my God. right here. Oh my goodness. Wait, you, you, this is like, this is not fair because I just literally wrote a hand note. Like that fits on the sheet that they give. Well, the font is big on that. That's all. And you said, and you gave me advice. You're like, write it as though you're in sixth grade writing it to me. So I did. My dearest Kirti Ven Venkata Rushmahara Juvara de Pita Naik. I Googled the uh, the longest name in India <laughs> and threw that and made that your middle name. <laughs> I don't have a middle name. I know you don't. That's you, why I threw that in there. <laughs> you are so cute. Would you like to have lunch with me, then hang out at recess together? I, this already trumps my note. We can play tag, take turns on the monkey bars, and even get dizzy on the merry-go-round. <laughs> <laughs> that does happen sometimes still. Uh -huh. Don't worry if you fall. I'll be there to catch you. I wrote a poem for you. It's called You Are Beautiful. Greg. What? You know, that's read, what I do. I write you're poems. You're not allowed to read my note. Why not? You cannot read my note. I'm going this. to read your note. Kirthi Nike, thou in my world, did you know that you are beautiful? The way you sway, the way you pray, enlightens me every day. The way you walk, the way you talk, brings treasure to life every step of the way. You beguile with your smile and your big brown eyes. They mesmerize, they touch the soul, truth be told, a fortunate style. Brought back from the Nile, I'm grateful you are in my life and I want to let you know inside and out, you are beautiful. I hate you right now. 
Why do you hate me? Because that's That's amazing. a pretty poem. That's a beautiful poem. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not poetic like you, so mm-hmm. this is... I've been trumped. <laughs> you have not been trumped. I love the life we have built and continue to build every day with our girls. I feel very fortunate and know you do too. Kirthi Nike, I love you. Stay glamorous. I will too. Greg, this is amazing. Well, thank you. Now just handwrite you know it. Po- you know I'm poetic when I, I know, write. Just handwrite it with your ugly chicken scratch handwriting and then I could save it. Why can you save that? I'm going to save this, but I also okay. want your handwriting. Okay, I can handwrite it. It's beautiful. Thank it you. just wouldn't fit on this, so that's why I didn't do it. Yeah, um, so don't read mine. Why not? I'm going to read it. No, please don't read it. Why not? Because it's so lame compared to what you just wrote. No, it's not. This is gorgeous. I love it. Ready? Oh, God. I don't even remember what I wrote. Dear Greg. It's beautiful. <laughs> Never in a million years did I think we'd actually end up together. I truly believed it would have to wait for another lifetime, given our previous circumstances. I am so happy you strangely entered my life. Albeit, is that crossed off or is that? No, there's nothing crossed off. This is like chicken scratch. I can't even read it. Albeit. Piercing, changing, waxing, pit squeeze is 100% worth what? the juice. What? <laughs> What's this? <laughs> Does that look like something was, look at this right here. That looks like that was crossed off. Can you, I can't even read that. It what says, is that? Albeit hard and challenging. Oh, this okay. This squeeze is 100% worth the juice. Thank Love you. Kirthi. Thank you. That was pretty. Thank you. I couldn't. You know, I'm a woman of very few words. I know. I know. I know you are. Yes. No. Maybe. (laughs) Kirthi's vocabulary (laughs) in three words. Thank you, Greg. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Did you like my note to you? It was, uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. It just flowed. I'm like definitely jealous I don't have your writing skills. Those are pretty damn good writing skills. Thank you. I wrote that just thinking of you. For a guy who didn't like to go to school or read. <sighs> Don't say he didn't like or, going to school. Or doesn't like writing. No, I believe in, I believe in education. I, no, I'm all about school and education. It's just... For others. For, no. And <laughs> I believe in being well-educated. Hello. <laughs> I do. I really do. And it's, but some people don't need the education. No, They're just naturally I, don't like smart. To, I just don't like to be in one spot for mm. too many hours out mm-hmm. of the day. That, that's my issue with an institution. Yes. And then the reading. We're coming back to reading. It's not that I don't like reading. I explained this in the last pod. All I do for a living is read, and as well as many other people, all we do is read and write. Mm-hmm. Then in my off time, all I do is read and write. So the last thing I want to do while I'm sitting on a beach on a vacation is pick up a book and read it. Although I do bring a book every single time and it's like the same book I've been reading for probably several years now because I just haven't finished it yet because there's just, I haven't finished it. (laughs) Although I've read it like three times already, but it's my beach book and it like brings me to beach vibes every time. It's a Jimmy Buffett book. Where you open it up and then you stop reading after a couple pages. Yeah, it's after maybe a a couple paragraphs, but... (laughs) Mm. That's because we get that's because we get distracted by something, whether it's the kids want to go in the water or if we're without the kids, we just go do something more fun. And so there's never really a moment to sit on the beach and just read. Mm-hmm. And I've never been the type of person that reads a book and like gets lost in a book and starts envisioning things. I just have 
issues where I read a page, forget exactly what I read, then I have to read it again. We are then now I get distracted. In the Greg reading and then writing I read monologue. it again. It's just like, unless it's <laughs> unless it's like a something that's a documentary or something for work or something that I need to do, that that's the only time like I have the true reading comprehension because I could fly through it and just bang it out well, quickly. Clearly, when you're forced to write, you can write something. Oh no, I I you know me. I'm not a fan of the process, mm-hmm. the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. I just love the end product. So I work my way through mm-hmm. the actual process just to get to the end product because well, I like the end product. What? Cheers to your beautiful poem that you wrote me. I don't think oh. anyone's ever written a poem Thank that you. was to me and about me. Well, I've written you several poems. Yeah, but that was like written in like 10 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. It flowed out. And you made me sound like a nice person. Well, you know, I need to because this is like for the public side. I got to manage my brand, guys. I mean, imagine if you guys all knew really what went on behind the scenes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) Well, speaking of behind the scenes, I think today we actually wanted to get a little bit serious with our followers. We do. So we decided to get dressed up like Barbie and get serious. (laughs) Yeah, because Barbie has a job, too. Yes, she does. Um, We're going through like middle. To look incorrectly anatomically or no anatomically incorrect is basically her job well that's actually not far from my actual um anatomical figure oh anatomical figure oh hers mine oh because you're i have no torso hmm well you are tall though that's because you're yeah your legs and boobs (laughs) (laughs) legs boobs head okay i get it thank you you're welcome. Um, so what I wanted to actually talk about, mm-hmm. which I don't think a lot of people know this aspect of us, and we certainly were with some colleagues recently at some work type of networking events where they we were, were they were like, why would you leave a big, sexy job at a big, well-known company to do what you're doing right now? Mm-hmm. And that really kind of struck a chord with me because mm. I was like, people don't actually kind of understand why we make the choices we make Mm -hmm. to do what we do. And then there's this other aspect of it that I thought would be helpful because there are what they, I think there's like 31 million people in the US workforce Mm -hmm. are comprised of entrepreneurs. Yes. People building new companies Mm -hmm. and why they do that and what what does it involve and what do we have to sacrifice and Um, I just thought that would be a great thing for you and I in our very unique experiences mm-hmm. to, to share. discuss and share and helpfully maybe inspire others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, it's not easy. It is not it's easy. It's not easy. Uh, and you do have to have certain things in place in order to do that. So especially for some of our, you know, younger, uh, kind of followers and listeners, and there's quite a few of you out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, hopefully this can give you some tools in your toolkit Mm -hmm. to think about in terms of what do I need to do in order to kind of take that risk? Yeah. And I think also, you know, our earlier careers coming from the entertainment world helped to develop some thick skin. So Mm -hmm. when you're an entrepreneur, the hardest thing to do is, is, is be able to deal with all of really the negativity and or criticism and people almost kind of I think hoping that you're going to fail, right? Well, rejecting. And, or, constant yeah, rejection. Con- constant rejection. Ab- absolutely. There's, you know. So I, I thought it'd be interesting to, um, for people to understand, what was your first job? What did you do? Why did you do it? Well, it depends on what we 
say his first job. Okay, not when so, you were selling Christmas trees. Okay, okay. I'm talking well, about. I was like, yeah, my, my first like job job. I was like, I was either eight or eleven. I forget which. I was selling Christmas trees. Well, if I count yeah. my first job, I worked I was at a hardware store, teaching piano lessons. Worked with my cousin um, as a carpenter. Was a lifeguard, mm-hmm. personal trainer. Okay, we're not talking about those. Okay. I'm talking about real job job. My first real job. I mean, technically, I'm trying to think, would Electric Lady be considered my first real yes. job? Probably. Yes. 19, uh, hooked up with a gig at Electric Lady, which is Jimi Hendrix's yeah, studio. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't you tell, um, tell me, tell us know. about Electric Lady Studios? Yeah, it was a and great why place. It was, I why was, it was, it's a big deal. Yeah, so I remember uh, interviewing for the position and... I happened to have a, a little bit of a hookup through my cousin who um, had his company had done some work for the owner's place. And so he had he had asked the manager of the studio if they could just speak with me because I had been involved in music. I had with my band, we had produced, um, you know, back when it was a lot harder to produce albums. You just nowadays you have home studios back then. You really didn't have home studios. You had like a four track cassette recorder. and That's all you had access to. Mm-hmm. And so we had gone into studios when I was really uh, quite young and recording uh, demos, you know, basically back in the early days um, when I was in high school and I even remember, junior high. I remember those um, early album covers you showed me. Yeah. I was like, Greg wore baggy jeans. Yeah. Back like when back, was that? Back back in the uh, er, very early, 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 early '90s, late '80s, <laughs> and so that was the look back then. And so I had experience in studios. I had experience producing and engineering and songwriting, arranging, and all those different pieces. And also, I had a technological, like a, a technology background, but also an electrical background. So I was always that kid that people came to because I was always building speakers. Uh, building speaker cabinets, working on guitars. So mm-hmm. if someone needed a new pickup put into their guitar, if they wanted it done just cheaply, they would just come to me and I would just go and solder in a new pickup. I could always fix fix things. So I kind of had all this like interesting experience. So when I interviewed for the position, I was discussing all this experience that I had. And so I started as a as a uh, as a GA, which was a general assistant, then made my way up to a second engineer, which is, you know, assistant, um, which is working with the engineers um, recording basically at the time the biggest albums uh, that were released so, with all the biggest producers, the biggest bands. I have a question for you. Yeah. It sounds like you did a lot of grind grind work. Oh, it's grunt work. So when you start, so back in the day, you know, it, well, an electric lady, what was interesting is it doesn't matter what your background was mm. or is. You started at the bottom. So an example is, I remember, so What's I left- What's the bottom? At grunt work. Being a runner- and so I'm going to give you an example of being at the bottom. So when I, so I had left Electric Lady, moved, you know, kind of more into the music industry. And I remember coming back to Electric Lady uh, one day to record. And I'm looking, I'm like, wait a minute, that's one of the members of the Psychedelic Furs. He's on his knees and he's scraping cement off of bricks. And I'm like, what is he doing? He's like, oh yeah, he's our new GA. I'm like, wait a minute, you're telling me one of the largest bands of the 80s. He's like, yeah, he wanted to really get into production. And so being an electric lady, it doesn't matter who you were, what you did in the past, you no matter what, you started at the bottom. And so the studio was going through some uh, there, you know, some some fixes, uh, you know, there were some a little bit of construction work. And to 
what they wanted to do is retain the integrity of the bricks that were there and then reutilize some of those bricks. So they were actually scraping off the cement off the bricks. What? So then the bricks could be reused. Did they not? And he was there scraping the cement off the bricks. I'm sorry. Why don't they hire a construction company? Yeah, the construction company is the one who did the building. But then also, it's all about costs, right? It's all about costs. As, as any corporate entity knows, it's all about cost cutting. And so, and <laughs> mitigating your, your financial risk. And so I showed it up. Sounds, I'm like, wait, why are you like, there? Like and, abusive labor. Yeah, it's ab- Oh, it's totally abusive. And also verbal abuse, too. So I dealt with, uh, uh, it was definitely abuse. Like we used to carry, so the, the studio it was three floors. And so when you walked in, it was great. Still today, one of the greatest studios, Studio A. Love recording that room. I, I feel there isn't a better sounding room to record a drum kit in. And that's because, you know, it was always said the Mineta Creek kind of runs through there. And there's like this natural humidity in the room. And then there's the spirit of Jimmy in that whole place. And, mm-hmm. and anyone who's ever worked there will know exactly what I'm talking about. We've all, we're all connected on, 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 on some level via the spirit of Jimmy. And, and just the rooms were just great did rooms. You, did you ever get to meet Jimmy? No, he died before I was born. He actually, he died the year I was born, I think. I thought he died in the 80s. Oops. No, he died in the 70s. I think he died. He died right before the studio opened. Hmm. He died right before the grand opening of, of the studio. And so, we're, actually, we're, I was kind of down this story. So we were talking, oh, so this is what we were talking about. So we used to, uh, the studio, so when you walked in, Studio A and B were downstairs, and then up a floor was offices, which are now other production rooms, and then there was a third floor, which had another studio. We, back in the day, everything was done on analog, and then all of a sudden, uh, there was a new tape machine that came out, which was like a half-inch digital tape. analog. Analog, so back in the day, albums were recorded on what were called two-inch reels, which was actual two-inch tape that held, uh, that you recorded onto, and you would typically need two tape machines, because they each would have like 24 tracks each, put them together, and you have 48 tracks. So everything was truly bespoke, and when you edited back then, you actually took the tape, put it over um, a metal plate, Mm -hmm. and then you'd actually physically splice it, and then put it back together, tape it, and that's how you would edit um, tape made, back in the they, day. I mean, that's how they made movies. Too. That's how they made movies. The same concept. So everything was done manually and bespoke. So all of a sudden, the studio happened to have this new cutting edge tape machine. This is before Pro Tools even existed. And so this new cutting edge tape machine that came in, and it was a half inch tape, digital. But the thing weighed like four, like I think it was like five hundred pounds. And because five hundred, it was something outrageous. Like four, like or an five, elephant. Yeah, it was like four or five hundred pounds. It was outrageous. So what we used to do is that if this, if the tape machine was all the way downstairs, but someone in C needed it, we would actually have to. We didn't. We we only had a lift that went up to the main floor. So we used to bring it up to the main floor on a lift, and then from there we used to have to go up, like these stairs, just flights of stairs. So we used to put it on a hand truck, and there'd be four of us: two on top, two on the bottom, lifting this thing up several flights of stairs to get it to uh, the studio. If that thing happened to fall, it would have crushed the two people below it and probably just like killed them. So, it was crazy. So it was like physical, like mad physical labor. So now, and then also just the verbal abuse was so, horrible. So like, okay, this sounds like really like intense. Yeah. Way more physically laborious than I think I imagined. Of course, it's heavy equipment that because you're always lifting. You were, and a, you're getting yelled at and screamed at for not doing it fast enough. Because you're a music enough. major, right, yeah. at SUNY. Um, is that what you expected? Well, I went, actually, so I went to both UConn and SUNY. I went to SUNY afterwards. So, uh, but were after you studying being, music at that time too? I was trying to. So, 
when I started Electric Lady, I wasn't studying music from an academic standpoint yet because I was going to Yukon and locally because I couldn't go to stores because I had this internship and we didn't have music classes. So it was after I started going to Yukon, which is then I spoke with my guidance counselor who then went to the dean to petition because I sat down with my guidance counselor. I said, look, I'm going to this institution. I cannot go to stores. I want a business music degree, as you know. I have a great internship. I said, your job as an institution is to further my career and not impede it. There has to be a way that I can get the degree that I'm looking for from this particular institution. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, um, let me petition the dean. Let's write up um, the reasoning and I'll go petition the dean. And so she went and petitioned the dean and my guidance counselor came back to me and said, great news, the dean has agreed to do something she said she's never done before. It was like the first of its of its kind, I guess, where they said you can go to, you can continue to take your business classes here and you can take your music classes at another credible institution. That other credible institution that I used to live near nearby was SUNY Purchase, which was a great studio composition program, also great for acting. And uh, I had to audition to get into that school, but the challenge um, was every semester when I registered for classes there. And this is back where you couldn't even register online. Oh, I know. I you remember to you had person. to go stand, you stand in, in lines. queue at like this boring ass And classes could fill office. up. Yeah, it would be horrible. Classes could fill up. And so... Nothing what, was online. Nothing was then. online. So I used to go stand in line then try to get into classes. So then I'd finally get into some classes um, on the music side. Then I'd have to fill out paperwork, send that to UConn. Then UConn had to then approve those classes as part of the curriculum. But the challenge that I had there is that took a few weeks. And now we'd be into the semester of school, and I would find out whether or not those classes would transfer or not. And then if they didn't transfer, which happened, I then had to remove myself from those classes, then go to try to find another class that wouldn't. And I'd have to beg the teachers Here's to get in. Here's my PSA beg announcement. Them beg them to get in new generations of students. You don't even know how lucky you are yes. and how easy it is. And at, at SUNY <laughs> purchase going into music theory classes and just real, cause it's a very competitive school and has yeah. great, 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 um, great programs. The challenge of entering into a class three weeks to a month late, you're so far behind everyone just to get caught up. So now I had to get caught up with everyone, which was extremely challenging while managing UConn while managing working full time. Something to it was me, really it was hard. Not that it hard was, for you. It was really hard. No, it was. It was. It was well, what made you actually? You want what made it hard? Well, this is what made it hard. Is when I would get into a class, uh, because of the type of classes that I was entering. Is that being a drummer or even trying to even play guitar? Those positions would be taken. Oh. Uh, I'd have to choose an instrument in which I'd never like either played before or one that I was less proficient in. So I remember taking this jazz class and I had to play piano. Wait, jazz piano? <laughs> jazz piano. Hard. Jazz, it's really hard. So I remember sort of crying when my really piano teacher hard. got me playing more jazz. And I was like, I really find this so hard on my hands. So I'm, so I would sit in, so like I would start to move fast. Oh enough. yeah. And, and piano is not my main instrument. No. And so I would, I would get into these classes and I remember this one jazz class and had just great players in it. And then there was a spot for like another pianist. And I tried to step into this class and it was, it was challenging. I had to work. I really had to work at it. Um, it, it, it took a lot of work to one, get caught up, let alone keep up with that particular class. So it was hard. And then as mentioned, being in a professional environment and anyone who's been in the entertainment world knows this, especially if you've worked at Miramax, um, we'll just say where 
and not even the sexual part of Miramax, just the verbal abuse that I've heard that people get. It's when you go into the entertainment world, you're just constantly getting yelled at, screamed at, belittled. Mm. People are drop, dropping the F-bombs at you left and right. Even you could be doing the best work for someone and you're just still getting screamed at. So you develop really thick skin because you have to work really hard. You have, it's laborious. And then you're getting verbally abused on top of it. Did you ever it. do those like um, the mirror affirmations to yourself? So when I was hmm. when I was pursuing commercial acting and I was getting rejected left and right because there was nothing at that time, I'm talking the late 90s, mm -hmm. uh, there was nothing really there for South Asian face. Mm. I was always trying to audition in parts that they were trying to make me Hispanic. Um, they, they came up with this terrible term called, you were going to try to position as Pan-Asian. I'm like, what the hell does that Pan -Asian. even mean? Pan-Asian. That, like, that's like general Asian? Like generally, I'm like any kind of Asian. Like that's weird. Because uh, I think I look very Indian. I would say so, yeah. Uh, but I was you don't constantly... Look Taiwanese. <laughs> I was constantly being pushed to weird casting uh, auditions. And I'm, I'm trained as a commercial actor. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was disheartening, you know, to like be rejected. Sure. Be told you're not thin enough, go lose 30 pounds, maybe then we'll consider you. By the way, back then, I was like a solid, like two, size two, zero. I was not at all wholesome like mm, this. Mm -hmm. So imagine being told that when yes. you're in your precious 17, 18, 19 year old. Yep. And so I, uh, at the time, well, it's had like an Devil Wears Prada, zero is the new two. Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so at the time, I actually had an acting coach uh, who was like, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be pushed down. You're going to feel like hopeless about mm -hmm. what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But doing a talk to yourself in the mirror at the time, now it's really popular and social. Like we talk about, let's do our morning affirmation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it makes me want to gag and throw up. Sure, but yeah. You know, it is important to remind yourself uh, that you have something to offer the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the world may not be ready to receive it. Yes. And so I actually did positive affirmations in the mirror. Really? Yeah. There, I don't do it now. Yeah. Maybe I should because then I'll be less psycho. Yep. But I, sh I used to do it when I was pursuing acting mm -hmm. because I was rejected on a daily basis. Interesting. I don't think, so I never did daily affirmations, but for me, as you know, I've always been athletic and I've always worked out. And then I used to, at that point, I would work out, but I'd also run, but I used to meditate. And so I think meditation is Meditation's what Meditation's another. It's another. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's about maybe self-affirmation, but at least clearing the mind and recalibrating. So for me, it was meditation and working out that helped. And then also being a drummer. I could pound the shit out of drums, and if, oh, yeah, as, know. as you know, and if I was and frustrated or I could just really, it, it's just such a great, and what? Oh, sorry, I didn't say anything. Yes, you did. What'd you say? You can move on. No, what, no, what'd you say? I, go, go Okay. On. And so that's a, that's also a, a great way to. You missed it. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, wink, okay. wink, nudge, okay. nudge. So anyway, so yes, so, so I, I found, but also. You didn't really, I feel like back then it was just nowadays it's people have access back then there were gatekeepers, 
right? You had to there go were channels, through. There, there were channels, but the they were held up were by limited. gatekeepers. Yeah. And you had to get, you had to start, we'll call it at the bottom, unless you were just a natural like Nepo baby. You had to still start at the bottom and work your way through and prove yourself to the gatekeepers to then open up a world to those that can help your career. Yeah. In this day and age, because of social and access that we have with the internet, just like that show that we watched a couple episodes of the other two, where oh. you can have... <laughs> In that case, you know, their 12-year-old brother released a song and doesn't even know how to sing. He did it as a joke and all of a sudden blew up to be this sensational star. Like a Bieber. Like a Bieber. And then all of a sudden, you then then like later on in an episode, you see him trying to perform live and he's completely off key and has no, just no idea how to sing, right? So digital technology or just technology in general has made the ability to be successful it's yes, it's challenging in its own way. More it's crowded, accessible. but it's more accessible than it was before because you didn't have to go through. You don't have to go through the gatekeepers that you once used to have to go through. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I like for I. I'll talk about how I got into. Yeah, so tell traditional us. So corporate. tell us what was you know not even corporate. What was your first job? You just asked me. What was your first job? My first job was at a modeling and acting placement company ah. called John Robert Powers. Mm. They originally were now, 100 years ago, a mm -hmm. beauty school. Oh, that's interesting. That was started. Was it powerful? Uh, like Grace Kelly went there and a Very lot nice. of famous black and white uh, princesses, I'll, I'll call them, uh, were known to have gone to the school. It was, it was about etiquette training. It was how to have a you know proper posture, Etc. And later they evolved to offer acting classes. So my parents knew I was interested in acting. They wanted to support my hobby. And so I went and took some classes for fun there over a summer. And I was like, gosh, I could really like, I thought I wanted to be a news anchor, but mm. it would be kind of cool if I actually do the acting angle as well. And so while I was in college, I took acting classes there, mm -hmm. uh, even script writing, all their type of fun stuff. Sure. And got to know the trainers, instructors. And as I went into my junior college, mm -hmm. they actually were like, we could create an internship for you. We could use someone with your skills. Sure. And because I was a marketing major yeah, which, at that which point. School, uh, which institution were you going to at that point? I had uh, transferred out of Rutgers University and put myself into City University of New York. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, I changed my major from computer science, pre-med, and math, which is what I was at Rutgers, and mm -hmm. recognized that I had no desire to be a computer programmer or a doctor. Hmm. And to really make sure I pursued the things that are most important to me, I wanted to major in corporate mm. communications and become like a news anchor. Sure. And so pre-med, is that why you're the doctor of love? You know, I'm actually just the, um, I don't even know what to call myself. You, mm. you just took me off my course. I'm sorry. Doctor so back to- That would be my middle sister. Oh, uh, yeah. She's a brain doctor too. Oh, she's a brain doctor too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so. I, uh, I actually had really wanted to go to NYU. Mm -hmm. uh, got in uh, when I wanted to transfer into the school, but the tuition was just far too high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad had sort of like wasted money sending me to Rutgers for a couple mm -hmm. years already mm -hmm. and was like, you need to like figure out what you're doing. Sure. And so I decided to just, you know what? The same teachers that I met 
at NYU happened mm-hmm. to be teaching at CUNY. And so I decided, why not just go to CUNY? Sure. And CUNY was convenient because I took classes weeknights mm-hmm. and on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So that allowed me to pursue my acting career and go on go sees and casting sure. auditions and sure. fun things like that. So Go-sees are hard because that's just like could be for anyone rejection after rejection, right? It was awful. Yeah. And you also have to take off your clothes and pose mm. and do all sorts of like, you know, they take photos of you and then yeah. they tell you afterwards, yeah, no, thanks. Bye. And Casting you're couch. not even told why. <laughs> you're just like <laughs> rejected. Uh, and so, you know, I built thick skin like you did yeah. doing what I did. Yep, You have to. But what I did discover is that I was a good marketer mm. because they gave me the opportunity to create a marketing internship at John Robert Powers. Oh, that's cool. And so I, I, I did grunt work for a marketer. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I helped them establish a uh, telemarketing and uh, lead generation strategy for finding new talent. Telemarketing? Yes. Which I, is still a thing. I wrote telemarketing scripts. I even got on the phone and telemarketed. I uh, are you probably learning something new about me I, right now? I uh, I am. And then I also helped design our kind of booths for uh, pop up mm-hmm. uh, stands at mm-hmm. malls. Sure. And I identified the malls that had like a lot of you know populations with like younger kids and teenagers that might be interested yep. that could probably use etiquette training. Frankly, a lot of people that can. A, that was a big way to break artists back in the day. Where um like a like a Tiffany. Or Debbie Gibson, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the mall appearances. Yeah. That was so a big piece. it was like I did, you know, boots on the ground work as a marketer. And uh, as I was graduating college, um, college mm-hmm. my, my boss basically was like, we'd love to hire you full time. So then That's he cool. hired me full time. And all, the, all that grunt work. Was your work, boss John Roberts Powers? No, he he was dead by then. Oh, was he? Oh, really? Okay. My um, the founder of the New York location was mm-hmm. actually uh, his name is Jean Piero. Still mm-hmm. connected with him today, mm-hmm. and he watches our pods. So shout out to you, Jean Piero. Yeah, yeah. You mention his name every once and in a while. And I called him GP. GP. And he's this really talented. Uh, he was in the fashion industry for mm-hmm. decades prior, worked mm-hmm. at Harper's Bazaar. He was editor, like he, you oh, know, was from Europe. He worked very closely, like we were connected with Elite, Wilhelmina, mm-hmm. um, all of the big agencies next. Sure. And so I actually helped him grow his business in the New York office mm-hmm. by establishing uh, B2B relationships that, you know, really was about mm-hmm. finding new talent, mm-hmm. helping them get placed in the right agencies. Sure. Uh, as well as I direct, then at that point, it was amazing. I was 23 years old. I had a job of like a 30 year old because after doing all that grunt work, mm-hmm. I was given the role of marketing director. So I managed all the telemarketers. Sure. I managed the staff. I helped drive like our entire B2B and B2C sales yep. and whatnot. So it was really great. And I loved my job there until 9-11 happened. And our building mm. got destroyed because it mm. was across from the second tower. Oh, so you were working there at that point. Yes. I see. And yeah. that is how I ended my kind of, uh, you know, initial introduction into the entertainment sure. business. I shifted into 
uh, another industry. Is he still is is he still a uh, like a casting director or is he retired? He's retired. He's retired he now? now like lives in Tulum. Oh, that's nice. So yeah. Huh. And uh, he lives a very happy life. That's where uh, one of your jewelry designers basically spends most yes, of her time yes. that you love. Goldish, Goldish, which I love. Yes. Uh, yeah, there were some exciting people I like. We mm -hmm. found in place like Josh Duhamel mm -hmm. was one of the actors during oh. my time there. That we as in like you guys discovered him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he was um, placed uh, into the soap opera scene. Oh, he was a soap opera actor he first. He was a soap opera oh. actor first. Interesting. Okay, yes. I didn't know that. Uh -huh. I think his character's name was Leo. If I can't remember, Leo. it was All My Children or General Hospital. Leo. I'm very really? much dating myself General right Hospital. Now. I think General Hospital's still around, isn't it? I don't know. They all sort of like went off air, right? Did they? Well, now they are. Now with a... Uh, no, no, uh, no. They're still young and the restless and bold and the beautiful. Uh, oh, you know, I wasn't thinking. I wasn't going there off air. I was just thinking with the, uh, with the strikes going on right now. Oh, well, that's a whole other Yeah, thing. that's a whole other... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it was... But, you know, you learn things when mm -hmm. you work in smaller organizations like that. You do the grunt work like we both did. Learn to be scrappy. And who would have known that both of us have had the opportunity to lead marketing in big Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, marketing wasn't even a trajectory for me. For me, I was going in, into the music industry and I, I, I really quite enjoyed it. I also wanted to be a, a performer. And then I started you know, getting more involved and was in different bands, um, was in a band signed to Warner at one point. And then as with most bands, just things sort of implode, we'll, we'll just say. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I realized that there's the session musician route, yeah. but I didn't want to be just a session musician. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mostly just because of my personality. I just like to be the one that's also producing and arranging and, then I started I would, seeing. I would not, you know, describe you as a small personality. No. Yes, I'm not a small personality. I'm not like I'm not the best person to sit there and hey, just <laughs> no more wire hangers. So Kirthi is doing. So we have a uh, well, you a have band. Sticks. You have sticks right behind I do. you. We, we have a band that we produce for charity, and so <laughs> we'll be working with the vocalists to keep everyone on time, or just with the band. Before I would sit down behind the drum kit, I would make everyone um, obviously rehearse and we'd be working on all their different parts and then we'd come together as a band. And she's making fun of me because as a musician, one thing I've always practiced to is a click track and to keep everyone on, <laughs> they make fun of me, DJ's gonna laugh at this, is, okay, vocalists, let's work on this. Uh -huh. Ready? One, two, one, two, three, and. And I would just keep everyone on we were scared of the sticks. On the right rhythm. It's not like I beat everyone with sticks, although I, mean, I probably should have on no, several occasions. That could have happened. It could have happened. But you guys would have liked it. And so ah. <laughs> and so seeing you know I remember seeing several interviewers uh, interviews, excuse me, with with session musicians and session drummers and like someone like say Steve Gadd. And the guy was at the time in his mid sixties and he's talking about how he still has to take these gigs and go on tour. And he'd you know, be on the road for 200 days out of the out of the year just to basically still support his family and you know support um, himself. And I just didn't want to be in that position where you're just constantly you're in your 60s, constantly on the road, always away from your family, making you know I don't want to say nominal money because you can make a good amount of you can make a great chunk of change as a session musician as well. But I just didn't want to be just a session player. I wanted to be the one 
kind of producing, working on writing and kind of building, building the bands. And so I just happened to, with a love of music, entertainment, fashion, because I loved fashion. And at this point, the internet started to proliferate. This is now the mid to late 90s. And I happened to get involved into an internet position at an or at a, at a startup that was all about music, fashion, gaming, and just overarching entertainment. So, and so that that's was my where, foray like, in I want to dig in. I want to dig in, um, not so much into like the company itself, but why, how you made this choice to take the chance to join a startup. Uh, what that means versus, hey, let me find a job at an established you know, larger company, uh, maybe with a little bit more security. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, I actually never wanted to be in a corporate organization. You still don't. I still don't. I loathed <laughs> corporate organizations. I, that just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. It was the last thing I ever really wanted to do. What drove me into the industry, we'll just say, is at the time I was still living in Connecticut. I wanted to move into New York City, but I loved technology, loved the internet and what it was doing. And it was just starting to proliferate and found a company that was aligned with what I wanted to do because we were um, working with other organizations like one like Genar or Cornerstone and these other organizations and putting together fashion shows, mm -hmm. right? We were working in, in the music industry. Did you see any famous fashion models? I'm sure I did back in the day. I don't if, throughout my career, um, I've been around an I immense amount of I, I famous individuals. I don't have. even remember half the people that I've ever met. I think the best story still, maybe because I'm like biased, uh -huh. is the fact that you've like performed with or worked with Depeche Mode. Oh yeah, like, I love Depeche I Mode. I was obsessed with Depeche Mode growing up. That was one, one, one I mean, of the many, many, Mode. many, many artists that I've worked with. But yeah, like, yeah. And, and you like never show off about it ever. I'm kind of like, baby, you should tell the story. Well, well, no, what's funny with Depeche Mode is, so they came to New York, I was young, I was still a teenager. Uh, they came to New York City, they were recording at different studios. I think they were in Europe prior, it was Dave Gahan was still recovering from in a suicide attempt, mm. getting off Drugs of and getting dying. off of heroin, and yeah. just the band was at, at a turbulent time, and so they came to Electric Lady again for like that spirit, right? And um, I happened to be put on on the session for uh, for a few days because um, one of the other uh, uh, second engineers that was there couldn't um, couldn't make it, and so I was on on that session for a little bit. And I remember working with them, and it was just a really challenging session. He wasn't really singing well. Um, at that point, they were just trying to piece together different, different, different vocal, different vocal pieces. And at the time, they were all about music programming, like programming drums and everything of that nature, because it was just they were, they were part of that that '80s um, sound moved, that moved into the '90s, and it was still all about electronics. And so I'm sitting there trying to convince them at one point that they needed a live drum kit. <laughs> so like this 19 year old kid telling Depeche Mode, you know, late '90s you ever guys ever think about incorporating real drums in, into your music? And cause I got to know them. Right. And so yeah. got to know, uh, the different members, uh, like, you know, Fletcher, Martin and Dave. And so we're chatting about it and they like looked at me as though I was from like another planet live drums. No, never. And so, but we were, we would like joke around about it. And then, you know, they ended up completing the, uh, the, the album it was released. And years later, all of a sudden now you go to a Depeche Mode concert and what do they have? They have a live drummer. <laughs> 
so with you know, a, a, well, you it's, know it's part of the live so band you, so it's, so it's kind of like funny a working experience with Depeche Mode yeah, yeah. and do you remember when we were I used to work with every major artist during that era yeah much, that and, and you know um, remember when we were in the Hamptons with Pooj mm-hmm. she uh, she also shared her Depeche Mode story because oh, when she was a runway model yeah, that's right uh, in Italy uh-huh. she ended up like uh, being invited to this like backstage experience as like a bunch of models who were invited and Depeche Mode wanted Indian food catered. So she was like, oh my God, real food for once. Because the whole time she was in Milan, yes. she had no real food because the models are not Because the models are not, yeah. Champagne and tissues, right? Is that, isn't that what they, uh, they, they mm. eat tissues and drink champagne? Right. <laughs> if you want to call it tissues. If you want to call it tissues. <laughs> <laughs> but so like that's kind of so funny here's the thing yeah i i think there are certain people built for startup mm-hmm. or even i'll call it high risk mm-hmm. company opportunities sure versus those who are not and i feel like when i think about your not to get technical or geeky but mm-hmm. when i think about your resume mm-hmm. you definitely have taken more high risk opportunities throughout your career high risk because i've just been i grew up as an entrepreneur right so just being younger i remember back in high school a friend uh my friend chris baker and i decided to start our own car detailing company like that we would do after school right so i was always doing something that was entrepreneurial even my earlier bands i was like managing the marketing piece i was the one kind of driving us into the studio booking our gigs Mm -hmm. like things of all that nature so i was always that type of person and so with an entrepreneurial spirit, I enjoy building something mm-hmm. versus coming back again to the studio musician piece. I don't enjoy just being told, just go do this. I prefer building. And so that's just kind of innate to who I am as an individual. And uh, I've always been one just to take risks because I just think that's, for me personally, that's just healthy in life. Always pushing yourself. And I think that's why I've excelled as a musician. That's why I've excelled at different areas of my life because I'm constantly pushing myself and it's the entrepreneurial spirit in me that continues uh, my my influencer, gives me my energy to always kind of push push forward and always look at what, what could be done next. And I think that's an entrepreneurial mindset. So I've always taken that path for the most part in my career versus going large corporate fortune um, 50 based based companies yeah. and the larger companies that I've been part of essentially were because I was with a smaller organization that was purchased or I kind of happened to fall into. Well, so what are three things you love about the startup environment and maybe three things you love about? Instead of me answering that question, let's let's flip that over to you for a sec, oh. because you have gone an entrepreneurial path, but then you when I first met you, you were, even though it was still a private company, it was still a large corporate organization, Oppenheimer Funds, right? Mm-hmm. And then you moved from Oppenheimer Funds to, is it Russell, which mm-hmm. was next? And then obviously BNY Mellon. And then you went from major corporations with very senior positions to, I'm going to go give the startup world a shot, right? And so you moved into the startup world and moving from a company that has clout to a company we'll call it, we'll just say, because when you're in a startup world, it's when you're at a larger organization, I was like, ooh, you're at that organization and we want to do business with you. You go to a startup, no one wants anything to do with you um, yeah, until you until think, that 
I think it's because they also or, don't understand us. They don't understand it, but they don't understand until that company becomes something or has some buzz about it. No one wants anything to really do with yeah. it, right? Yeah. So it's it's a hard, heavy lift to get a startup to that to that point. So for you, going from that world into the new world, I'm really interested in hearing more about your career trajectory and why you decided to maybe later in life go that route. But then number two, answer your own questions in that capacity. Oh, damn it. You're yes. throwing the ball back in my court? I am, and then I'll answer them after you. I like being anchor woman, right? And ask the questions. Anchor woman? Well, I could be anchor man. <sighs> you can, unfortunately. I'll just be less misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Uh, it's not so, an attribute that I'm drawn to, for sure. Mm. Uh, so for me, I think growing up in a family where predominantly everyone's a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, we've got lawyers aplenty back in India, major law firms and stuff Mm -hmm. and judges and all that. Being a marketer was just new to the whole family, right? And, but as a marketer, I think, I I love being a marketer and I think what I love about that is the idea, I I had this dream, right, when I was in college of, Mm -hmm. I wanna, I'm gonna be a marketer at a PNG company, or oh, you know, or a luxury brand, like a Procter and Gamble company. You yeah, wanted, like, like CPG. I want to sell cereal. CPG. Or I or oh, you the other cereal. or the other extreme. Is that why you eat cereal like twice a day? I love cereal. Cereal is like the best food ever. What's your favorite cereal? Uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Ooh. We talked about this before. I know, but I just wanted everyone. And Raisin else. Bran. Ra- I know. Who eats Raisin Bran? I love Raisin That's like for like 75 year olds. Who so have like raisin bran colon with issues? Who does not like raisin yeah. bran with a little crunch? Have you had um colon blow yet, or super colon blow? What the hell is that? <laughs> any, any, anyone, My ass is not gonna blow no, out. If anyone knows that reference, back from the like earlier, I don't want to say earlier, but like back in the SNL days, probably I don't know the '90s, they you know how they run their little commercials, their satires. One of them happened to be colon blow. <laughs> One bowl of colon blow is equal to 500 bowls of the closest fiber <laughs> cereal. You know And then what? they have super colon blow. Not that people need to know this about me, but uh, it does keep me regular and it's fine to be regular. Mm, yeah, regular. It's okay. important for our I know. body. Yes, I can see that. Yes. Anyway, so I think I dreamt about... Colon blow? No, <laughs> now I'm thinking about that. I think I dreamt about the idea of like, gosh, I want to be, um, um, not, I, I never thought about being CMO, by the way. Mm-hmm. I just thought about, I want to manage a really cool brand sure. and drive their growth or do sexy commercials and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, that did not happen. I ended up in beloved financial services. The financial world, yes. But I, but I really kicked off my career at Citibank, which mm-hmm. I still think was the oh, I forgot about Citibank. best yeah. breeding ground for my, my personal ambitions and career. Uh-huh. Uh, they were supportive on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I really also owe that to the amazing leadership and managers I had mm-hmm. uh, who are still blossoming all over the place today, like a Melissa Stuckey Stevens, who's leading the charge at sure. uh, Fifth Third Bank. And then there's Liza Landsman, who just mm-hmm. keeps rocking it. Mm-hmm. Uh, really pragmatic and super intelligent women sure. that gave me a platform to Was learn. that back when that was the only tall building in Long Island City? Yes. 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 I was going out there when I was creepy mm-hmm. on the subway. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
it was worth it. But I learned so much mm-hmm. about what it really is like to be a marketer when you don't have a tangible product. Sure. And I think the complexity of working in companies that sold intangible products mm-hmm. really drove my creativity. So they sold vaporware. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like smoke. Huh. And mirrors. Smoke. But my point is, I never thought I'd actually end up being a financial services marketer. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud of the skills I've actually developed over sure. the course of my career in those big companies mm-hmm. working across different functions. And I had no ambition of wanting to be a CMO. In mm-hmm. fact, as you know, I avoided CMO type roles mm-hmm. the last several years. That is true. You have. Because I felt CMO is a soul sucking job where you're just defending dollars Mm -hmm. working on operations and you lose all access to being a part of the creative process. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. And yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's protecting the team. It's defending your dollars, defending the function and just being operational. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It does. It, it kind of strips the, it almost the joy, the joy or the creativity out of you. Yeah. And for that reason, after having been quite successful in major fortune, whatever, Mm -hmm. 100 brands, Mm -hmm. whether they're private or public entities, Mm -hmm. I decided I want to build something. Sure. I have learned a lot. I have also, I also felt like I could learn more Mm. and learning more doesn't come from being in something that's already built, but building something. So you like Richard Gere and Pretty Woman and had an epiphany? Where you go from being a corporate raider to, I think I want to build something. I do. Mm. I had my Richard Gere moment. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole thing with blockchain started to come to fruition. Mm-hmm. And I was exposed to it back in 2012 mm-hmm. when, you know, the first paper had come out on sure. Bitcoin and all that. And I was like drawn to it back then. Mm-hmm. But fast forward to 2017, I was still very much intrigued and interested in Mm -hmm. this whole world of AI and machine learning and technology. And I had a chance. I, I, you know, had a, there was a startup that seemed like it was reasonably funded. Mm -hmm. Uh, My entire career, I've always had to be the secure, steady earner. Sure. Because I was the dependable uh, income breadwinner, whatever you want to call it. Totally. And I, I was now taking high risk, a single working mom, mm-hmm. but I felt like I had amassed a certain amount of savings and wealth. Sure. Yeah. And I was in a good position. I was paying my mortgage. Yep. I own a home. Like I was doing things on my own. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to do something interesting. Yeah. And so I joined a really small little boutique blockchain company. Mm-hmm that had a lot of literal and uh, figurative manpower behind it. Sure, yeah. And some big personalities. And big personalities. And, and you know, they are successful today. They they launched and did everything. Fast forward a few years later. But I, I got to build something while I was there with them. Sure. I got to learn something new. Unfortunately, the pandemic happened. Yes. And I was kind of sucked back into 
corporate America, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. And what I recognized in that experience at that moment when I was sucked back in mm -hmm. is I need to take on jobs that allow me to do something to fulfill me mm -hmm. as a human being. Yes. That I have spent my entire life as a professional, which is more than half my life at yep. this point. I was like, I have helped the high net worth amass more wealth or the wealthy mm -hmm. become wealthier. Yeah. And it really, I want to do something where I'm creating solutions to really fix problems. Sure. So sure. I was drawn back out from my really high profile job at BNY Mellon yes. to do that. Yep. And does a part of me regret it? I only regret it for missing the people and, mm -hmm. the, and the team that I built, but I don't regret it in terms of what I'm getting to do right now. Sure, yeah. And I don't mean to sound altruistic, but I, I'm. it takes grit. It's taking high risk. Yep. I don't sleep a lot of nights, yeah. um, but that's why they have under eye concealer. It's an emotionally challenging. It's it's, it's a roller it's, coaster. It's 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 an absolute roller coaster. And well, what you just even mentioned, and because we're both in startups right now, we yeah. both have come out of corporate organizations where you know we were paid quite well. And when you're paid quite well, you invest in your life. And you mentioned like buying a place and other you know investing in, in other areas. And so you have a certain lifestyle and then all of a sudden you go to a startup and it may not be able to support that lifestyle anymore. So you have to make certain changes in life because you're looking, you're banking on the bigger picture, which is, can this company be successful? Because there's an element of, of, of equity. But what I've learned along the way, and I've been at, you know, you've heard me say this multiple times. I've been on the startup level, the mid-sized company and the enterprise level mm -hmm. organization. Each one has their own challenges and each one has their own way of functioning, but there are some similarities. But one thing I have learned because I have been in organizations that have been, uh, that have offered a great culture mm -hmm. and others that have offered the most toxic culture that cultures that I've ever, you know, been part of. And where I am right now in my life, is I look for a few things. One truly is a company that I'm gonna be part of, do they have a great product? And do I believe in that product? Yeah. And is it driving the future of business? I don't wanna be with an old antiquated company that's just stuck in their ways. And then they become like Tower Records and go the way of the dodo because they- Or Kodak. Or, or Kodak or uh, Blockbuster. Blockbuster could have been Netflix, yeah. right? And so these companies that just unfortunately um, become obsolete. So for me, it's, is this product driving the future? Also, is it helping to democratize? I want to be part of something that's helping the world become a better place. Secondly, is the culture. And is it a great place to, to work? Do you want to be part of that team? Do you like the people? Do you like the people? And I've learned that those two things, when combined, is a much better working environment than the money. I've taken gigs for the money been the worst places I've ever been. And I've 100%. taken gigs that have paid me less that have been the best. So I've completely shifted my priorities in moving forward. It's it's obviously we want to make enough so we can support our family and support the investments that we have. Well, but here's the thing. It's expensive, but I think I think those are really good things for us to be aiming for. But I think it'd be also helpful to share with folks uh, what it takes in order to choose to do that. Right. I think we come from a culture, especially if you're working in traditional companies and even in terms of personal lifestyle, mm -hmm. I think there's this notion of 
immediate gratification. Yes. Yeah. And you know, I wanted it and I wanted it yesterday. But if you enter this environment of building something with a founder or founding something on your own as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, it's not for you if you're looking for immediate gratification. No, it's not. Even us working and building on this pod, we're doing it in an organic fashion, yeah, we right? Are. We won't, it's, not a, it's not going to be about immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. It's about being committed, doing it for the long haul. And being authentic to who we are. Yes. People are either going to like it or they're not going to. But, like but you have to and be patient. You have to be patient. But you also have to be patient with a lens for identifying moments of failure. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is because a lot of startups tend to go into this. I, I heard this term recently. They go into the living dead mode mm. because they, they're like, oh, it, this didn't work. Let's just keep going. Let's just do it this way now. Let's keep going. It's going to work this time. So you also have to know when to exit. So. Are you saying like zombie mode as yes. in they keep doing the same thing over and over? Well, there's the same thing over and over. Or they think this didn't work. Let's try this angle. Mm-hmm. And they keep going at it. With the same a, product? With maybe modifying the product. I or see. like, But they keep staying with their mm-hmm. vision. Well, isn't that the, the definition of, in, of insanity, right? Where you keep doing but, the same thing, but you know but there's hope a lot for a different result. A lot of startups do this. Yes, they do. And, and then they're like, let me get another million. Let me get... So like recently mm-hmm. I left a startup mm-hmm. before I joined the SPAC I'm at right mm-hmm. now. I saw that like in the writing, mm-hmm. you know, I was like mm-hmm. their KPIs are not being addressed. Sure. So therefore this is not going to be working out in the long term. Yeah, yeah, yep. Like to your point, the product needs to be defined and it needs to be addressing a real solution for the mm-hmm. marketplace. Not just because Hi, I build it. I made it. So cometh. Yes. And and so I've been with organizations like yes, that, especially we both ones, have. especially uh, startups that have been. No offense to engineering teams. I love engineering teams. Um, uh, someone who's always actually defending throughout my career, defending the technology teams because I have an understanding of technology. And when you build something, it's not always going to work perfectly. So I'd always be the team like in marketing and a marketing function, always defending the technology teams. But I've been in, with organizations where it's been helmed by a by the tech, by the head of technology, yeah. and they have that that mindset of build it, they if come we in. build it, they will come. We don't care about advertising. We don't care about sales. We don't care about marketing. Our product is what we have built is better than anything else. It'll sell itself. It'll sell itself. And you won't happen to those companies I was with. They tanked. Yeah, tanked completely. So these tanked. are but these are just things to be aware of, mm-hmm. and. No matter what someone tells me going into these type of environments, it is 100% high risk. Mm-hmm. There's no medium. There's no low risk. No, you could do your homework, risk. right? Like, oh, they're funded by the right VC or they have like the right X million dollars for a trajectory to build and launch in the next mm-hmm. five years. It's all high risk. It's all high. Even so what happened to me recently? I joined an organization that was looking to expand into the U.S., uh, invested in by one of the largest. A very well-known. A very well-known investor, probably one of the largest in the world, also known for losing billions on a regular basis, but they still invest heavily. And they invested, and then literally two months later, all of a sudden we identified, and the company identified right now, because of market conditions, wasn't the best time to expand into an already crowded marketplace. And what happens? 
rug pull, the company completely shut down yep. out of nowhere. But we had made decisions based upon that particular job. So one thing about being an entrepreneur or start joining a startup, we'll just say, I've, at least from my experience, the older that you get and the more responsibility that you have to start to assume makes it m even more risky. It's always 100%. a risk, but it makes it more risky. Because being in my early 20s, when I didn't have a child, you know, now we have a family, we have, we have two children together, uh, you didn't own it as many, you didn't own really anything necessarily quite yet. You have just your sole responsibility. It's a lot easier to sustain your own life in being risky versus later in life when you take a risk, you have many other responsibilities to other people and other debts that you might have yeah. due to ownership of things yeah. that you have to take into consideration. And it creates a whole other world of stress. So I think it's good for us to maybe leave people with a few tips okay. when they're thinking about pursuing an entrepreneurial path or a traditional path, whatever makes them happy. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, don't go with what one individual may lead you to think about the company you're interested in joining. It's important to talk to the advisor, mm -hmm. the board director, just try to talk to as many people as possible. Just don't go by, hey, we are funded by X dollars. Mm -hmm. Maybe find out who at those different VCs or private equity firms might be funding it. Get more information. Well, it's all about getting more information, but it's also about, you know, as you were saying, just being realistic about the company. It's very easy to get caught up in a startup and in a wow factor of maybe what they're doing. But you also need to assess, really, is there a market need for it? What is the competitive landscape? Is it too ahead of its time. And what I mean by too ahead of its time, I'm mm. going to just do a music reference. So take like a band like, you know, Jane's Addiction back in the day. Um, they were always considered to be ahead of their time in terms of their sound, which is why they didn't take off necessarily as as large as uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and, and, hmm. and others, right? I didn't know that. So yeah, so and that happens in music all the time. It's all about the right place and in, in, in the right time. Also, another tip is to not be mesmerized by the stock options that you get. One, because there's That's different types. That's a really types. good point. Yeah, there's different types of stock options. There's, there's you know preferred stock options, which pretty much investors get, and then there's other other options. And you might be lured with uh, a, a, a package that includes a large set of options, but those options are actually meaningless unless one, the company's either sold and or uh, you go you go public. And then if you decide to leave the organization um, before your options are vested, you lose them. And then even if you leave the organization after they have vested in order to retain those options, you actually have to pay out of you pocket for them. those options. Yeah. And so that may not be attainable. So say you get you know, 100,000 options and say they're a dollar a piece mm -hmm. and you vest, you leave to retain those options, you have to shell out 100 grand, right? So one thing to be cognizant of is just look at the, the total package. Is it a product you feel that you're excited about? Is it a great team to work with? And is the package commensurate with your experience? And yes, you may, it may be weighted for options, but if you believe in the product and it's the right market fit and you think it's the right team that can go there, absolutely take it. Most of the companies, I think there's only been, of all the startups I've been with, only one company I've been able to exercise the options. Only wow. one only one of them and that was IGN when we were bought by Fox wow and i've been with several and you've been with so many i have given back to organizations millions of options that's crazy 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 and one other company that i was with um, was bought i'd already left the organization 
And uh, I'm glad that I, le- I left the organization purposefully. And when I left the organization, they were kind of going down. And then when they were purchased, they were purchased at a fire sale where their options at one point were technically worth a few dollars a piece that were then sold for pennies. So it would have been a loss. That's great learning lesson. So yes. So, so that brings me to the next tip, which is don't undersell yourself for how much cash you actually need in hand. Mm-hmm. Because that means you need to have enough savings or mm-hmm. cash, accessible cash. You need reserves. Right. Always have In order reserves. to actually make ends meet while you're waiting for this company to launch or so take off. That's another great example is because it it's a startup, you may be on a payment schedule, but mm-hmm. depending on that startup and funding could be cut technically at any time or there could be other issues. And you may be expecting a paycheck on the 15th and 30th, all of a sudden you may get notice, we're not gonna pay you for another month or two. And now you have to be able to carry yourself off your savings in order to make it to that next paycheck. Which brings me to my next point. Always have a minimum of at least a year of savings in hand if you're going to pursue something like this. Mm -hmm. It could take you in any direction, right? And as Greg just said, so. I think that's great advice though for in whether general, or not, yeah, in like general, whether you're, yeah, whether you're going to a startup I, or did not. Did you know I have a wealth management background? I've heard, I might have heard a rumor. Oh. Really? Ah. When did you start in wealth management? <laughs> so it's, you know, all of these little personal tidbits really help shape and inform mm-hmm. what you can do mm-hmm. or what you can't do. Yes. And it's not for everyone. And my last tip is, this shit does not happen overnight. No, it doesn't. So if you're in it for immediate gratification, it's not for you. Yeah. It really isn't. It's hard work. It's hard work. Also, you have to be, typically in a startup, depending on the size of the startup, you have to be multifaceted. And it's incredibly hard to grow um, a team in a smaller based environment because you need to hire people that are multifaceted because the functions aren't defined yet. Right. And then as you start to mature as an organization, then you can start to delineate the responsibility and then actually bring in these multiple functions. That's why I say you gotta get so, you gotta put those rubber gloves on. Yeah. And you gotta get your hands well, dirty and be do. able to do anything that is asked of you to do. Well, even something as simple as like what we're doing here with God Spice or even the organizations we're with with right now, we were at larger corporate organizations where when you're sitting at in a CMO role, we mentioned it's operational and others are actually handling individual functions as part of that department. So you're used to assigning Although, can roles. I just say something in our CMO yeah. roles? We didn't have the opportunity to just be operational. No, it's not just operational, but you still have to be. So one thing about but marketing, we definitely have you still like have to be in the weeds. SMEs. You have to be both. So you have to be in the weeds to understand what's kind of really going on and be part of it. Yes, 100%. You have, but you have subject matter experts, right, that are there. But when you're in a startup, you have to be the subject matter expert in everything. And then also, if you've been, if you're doing it and you're coming from the corporate world, you have to relearn to like roll up the sleeves and actually do all of the tactics yourself that maybe an agency once used to do for you. Listen, I've re-embraced my editing and Photoshop skills. Mm -hmm. You have, you're quite good at it. I mean, hopefully you guys enjoy what we watch. Yes, yes, absolutely. So what we're saying is joining the startup world is awesome and fascinating. It's risky. 
know what you're getting into. It's a different vibe than a corporate organization. It could be a whole other like world of reward emotionally, physically, financially, and we wholeheartedly endorse it, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not made for everyone. It's not made for everyone. Although I was an interesting stat I'm going to leave you all with. Hmm. Uh, what percentage of millionaires are represented by entrepreneurs? By entrepreneurs, what percentage? I'm going to say by entrepreneurs. What year is this stat? Is it a new stat? It's a new stat. So if it's a new stat, uh, entrepreneurs, if it was years ago, I would throw it a different, but if a new stat, I'm going to say 60%. 88%. So, but you don't do it to get rich. Yeah. You become an entrepreneur because Some people you want do. to build something. Some people do. I mean, yeah. sure. Just can't build anything. Yeah. But... I agree with you there because the way I always looked at everything that I have always done, I haven't looked at it from the lens of making money. I looked at it from the lens of if you can build something great and it can appeal to people or you build this bridge between audiences mm -hmm. and it's something that everyone can be part of, the money comes naturally. I agree. And that's a wrap. Back.